A new year, 2018. Just it's that time of year that we're what making resolutions. Hopefully that we won't break. Um, but becoming more like Christ is our daily resolution. Amen. Amen. And you can't become like Christ if you don't know Christ. And our problem is, is that we think we know God completely. But He can't be known completely. He's infinite and we're finite. He can be known, though, personally through faith in Jesus Christ and through His Word and the Holy Spirit revealing to us truth about God. But we must first come to grips with the fact that each and every one of us think we know the way God thinks. Think we know the way God thinks. And we become um, assured that whatever we're thinking in a given situation, however we're viewing the world, is exactly the way God must view things. And then there's no power in the Scriptures to transform because who needs to be transformed when you already think exactly like God thinks? But what does the Apostle Paul say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the image of this world. We're, we're born into this world. We're worldly. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. And When we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and gives us the ability to start seeing the world through new eyes, the way God sees it. And we come to His Word, and we should expect the Word to hit us smack in the face and challenge our misperceptions. Anytime you dig in your heels and you think you have things all figured out, that is a dangerous place to be indeed. This morning we're going to look at some people who really thought they had God all figured out and they could not be more wrong. And it's an example to us. It's an example. It's hard for us to be confronted. And sometimes it's easier for us to see others being confronted and then to later say, I wonder if I'm a bit like that. I wonder if I'm a bit like that. So that's my prayer for you this morning as we cover a very familiar and beloved parable. What a way to kick off 2018, the parable of the prodigal son, which you will not find that title anywhere in your Bible. (laughs) Some publisher put that heading in the Bible, and now we think the story is all about this prodigal son. And indeed, there is a prodigal son, a, a wayward son, prodigal, loose living, and you know the story. He, he runs away from home, squanders his inheritance, finds himself at the pit of despair, wallowing around literally in a pigsty, and he comes to his senses. He repents, and he comes home, and the father receives him home. Beautiful story. It's beautiful to me because in my own way, this is my own testimony. Maybe it's your testimony too. Frankly, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is your testimony, whether you know it or not. Hopefully, by the end of the sermon, you'll be convinced this is your testimony. You don't have to run far away from home physically to be the prodigal child. The point is that the son's heart was far from his father's heart. 
In fact, there are two prodigal sons in the story. Neither heart was close to God's heart, the father's heart. One ran off, one stayed home. Both were far from the father. And so even though the the part of the story that really grabs our attention is the son who returned home, I want to tell you this morning that the story was actually told by Jesus for us to focus on the other son. Really, it could be called the, uh, the story about the other son. Or I'm calling this the story behind the story of the prodigal son. Why do, why do we know this is where the focus should be? Because we are learning to read our Bibles in context. In context. And we see that Jesus has been teaching the crowds and he's been healing and demonstrating his deity. And we know he's going to go to the cross. And that is precious to us as it should be, but there was a group of people who were not excited about his ministry at all. And it happened to be the religious leaders of Israel. The people you would most expect to get things right about God. The ones who study the Scriptures, the ones who are the professional at handling the Word of God, the ones who run the synagogues, the ones who do the teaching, the shepherds of Israel, as it were. And yet, God showed up in human flesh, and they didn't recognize Him. Not only did they not recognize Him, but they were disgusted with Jesus, with His compassion and His mercy and this eating and dining and associating with sinners. They had no category for this kind of behavior. And so Luke 15 starts out with them complaining, uh, grumbling is the word in the Greek, under their breath, why does this man receive sinners? And so that's, that's the question before us. They have this question, why does this man who claims to be a holy man and can do these amazing things, why is he so not like what we would expect a holy man to be? In fact, he's, he's quite the opposite of what we would expect him to be. And he's calling himself the Son of God, in essence making himself equal with God. And so now they're getting angry. And so they have this question, but they don't actually want to know the answer to the question. Some questions we ask rhetorically. We're not expecting an answer. What, what, is, what is this all about? Well, let me tell you. I don't want to know. I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I'm disgusted. There is no reasonable explanation for this. Jesus, knowing their hearts, answers their question with a parable. And remember what we've learned from Luke's gospel, that when Jesus teaches in parables, it's to hide the truth from people who've already hardened their heart against God. But for those who have a soft heart towards God, the parable causes us to dig deeper. The word parable, literally, parabolos, means to cast alongside. So it takes a worldly material 
truth that we, we understand because we live in the material world. And it casts it alongside a spiritual truth which we don't understand because we're not from heaven. So if you want to know what heaven's like, Jesus takes something in our day-to-day world and says, heaven's kind of like this. You have to be careful with parables. This is not an exact one-to-one comparison. But how are we going to know what heaven's like if we've never been there? And how is someone who's been to heaven going to explain heaven and the kingdom to people who have no category for these things? And so what Jesus does is take something from categories we do have and say, hey, the kingdom's a lot like this. And in this case, he's saying, you don't know God, the Father. I know the Father. And let me tell you, he's a lot like this. And I'm going to tell three stories. And the stories help us as Christians who have the Holy Spirit and have our eyes open to go, wow, is that what God is like? But for people who've hardened their hearts against God, Jesus designed these stories to actually harden their hearts even more. And you need to know that for the story to make complete sense. He's he's designed these stories to reveal the ugliness of the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. He he lays a trap for them. They walk right into it. In, in, In a similar way that Nathan the prophet opened the eyes of David the king in his adultery and in his sin by telling a story about a shepherd who has one little ewe lamb, and it's his precious little lamb, right? But then along came a man with many sheep and took the lamb from him, and David is furious because he's a shepherd. Who is this man? Let's track him down. Let's, let's beat the snot out of him, you know? And the prophet says, David, you're that man. And even worse than a sheep, you stole another man's wife. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's putting the Pharisees into the story and they don't even know it. And then at the right moment, that's you. And this is your attitude towards God. It's bad enough to have the wrong view of God. It's bad enough to have the wrong view of God. And we, and we all... in some part in some measure have the wrong view of God. That's why we're here. It's why I study the scripture. It's why you study the scripture. We want to know God, don't we? And we can't just make it up. We can't just fill in the blanks. God must reveal to us what he's like. In the same way that someone that you're getting to know can't make up things about you and assume that's who you are. You must reveal to them who you really are. Now, the difference with God is, is God knows himself perfectly. We lie to ourselves. We think we're revealing ourselves to other people, but often we're only revealing the things that we want them to know about us. Right? Isn't that what social media is all about? Just the things I want you to know about me. When God reveals himself to us, we get the full picture and we never have to go, I wonder if he's holding back. I wonder if that's really the way he is. God cannot lie. 
And so when we see this picture of God in the Bible, in this parable, and if it kind of rocks your world, that's a good thing. That is a very good thing. It's bad enough to have the wrong view of God, but it's even worse if when the correct view of God is presented to you, you are disapproving. Well, that's not my God. Well, God would never be like that. You're really saying, well, I would never be like that. And therefore, God would never be like that. See how how ugly that is. Ugly enough to have the wrong view of God. Really ugly when man disapproves of God. In essence, sitting in judgment over God. So the story is going to be in two parts. And really, the first part of the story starts all the way back at the beginning of Luke 15 with the other two stories. So part one, we'll call this part the perceived dishonor of a shepherd, a woman, a son, and a father. See, there's five characters altogether, not including the sheep and the coin. Five characters. A shepherd who loses a sheep, a woman who loses a coin, A father who loses a son. There's four characters. And then this older brother. When Jesus teaches a parable where there's people involved, it's implicit that we're supposed to identify with somebody in the story. Especially a story designed to show how God relates to mankind. Okay, well, which character in the story is God and which character in the story is supposed to be me. Jesus could have started his parables picking any example, but he specifically picked a shepherd, knowing that the Pharisees and scribes would have no respect for a shepherd. They were at the bottom of society's totem pole. They were practically outcasts. About the only lower he could have gone was, would be to say, you know, imagine you were a Gentile or imagine you were a Gentile with leprosy or imagine, you know, we could, we could keep heaping on qualifications. But we hear the word shepherd and we're like, oh, what a beautiful picture. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus is the good shepherd. Our pastors and elders are shepherds. But in this culture, shepherding was what you did when you couldn't do anything else. So when Jesus starts in chapter 15, verse 3, and says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them? Right there, he's already setting up his audience for like, well, stop right there. Why would I be taking care of sheep? I mean, here are these shepherds of Israel, and they can't associate with shepherding. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. No, I'm not. If he can't live a righteous life, that's his, that's his deal. It's not my problem. I keep myself holy. I'm good with God. I've earned my way to heaven. That's their problem over there. Well, don't you care that they're not going to heaven? They know what they're supposed to do. They just won't do it. It's that kind of attitude. Then he moves on to 
The second example, what if a woman loses a coin? She, she has 10 coins. It's her net worth. She loses one of these coins. She's lost 10% of her net worth. It's gone. It, 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 it's in this one little coin. And it's gone. She's, she's panicked. This is what she needs to live off of the rest of her life. And they can't identify with this story either. I would imagine their attitudes were like, well, that's what you get for giving money to a woman. You know, shame on her. It's her fault. She was careless. We're not going to bail her out. Now, the rest of the people who have humble hearts, both these stories are like, oh, this poor shepherd, and he lost his sheep. That's his livelihood. And when the owner of the sheep come back and say, where is the hundred sheep I gave to you, this guy's going to be in trouble. Or if they were shepherds themselves, uh, shepherds um, loved their sheep almost like children. They, they cared for them. They'd lay down their life for the sheep and, and um, get in between their sheep and danger. Go out into dangerous waters to retrieve a sheep. And we should all be able to identify with someone who's, who's lost a bunch of money. It is scary. That is what you need to live off of. And there was no way she was getting that money back if she didn't find it. There was a lot of money she had, she had lost. So the stories were designed to expose their, their lack of compassion and their heartlessness. Then Jesus transitions to this third story, and now maybe they're ready to listen. So there's this father, and he has two sons. Okay, he's in our world now. These are uh, a man who owns property and has two sons. A man with some money, some dignity, some respect, a high position in the village. Okay, now we're tracking. Now we're tracking. So he's got them right where he wants them. He's already decided that three of the people in the story who were later going to find out represent God, they're going to have no respect for. The shepherd, the woman, and the father turn out to be representations of God. And these people have no respect for the shepherd no respect for the woman, and when they find out what this father's going to do, they're going to have no respect for him as well. Certainly, they have no respect for the younger son, the prodigal, the lawbreaker. And certainly, the younger son lives a very disrespectful life. he's, He's earned dishonor. The other three characters, though, have not earned any dishonor, and they're the ones that represent God. So you see how the focus of the story is on people who've decided God is a certain way. And when God himself shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and he says, no, 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 God is this way. They're sitting in judgment over God and saying, well, if that's God, we don't want any part of that. How sad. Because you love this story. You're so thankful God is like this that he's merciful 
And his love is steadfast. And he's ready to forgive again and again and again and again. Because you know you need that kind of forgiveness. These people didn't think they needed that kind of forgiveness, compassion, and mercy. They had a very high view of themselves. So let's get into the story here. It starts with a dishonorable request with a dishonorable response. Now the request was actually dishonorable. The response is only dishonorable according to the social mores of the time. Jesus says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. A very dishonorable request. So the older son, by Levitical law, would get a double portion of the inheritance. The older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son, one-third. The younger son doesn't want to wait around for his inheritance, right? That doesn't happen until his father dies. So in essence, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because then I'd have my money and I could go have fun. Demonstrates how far... This son's heart was from the father. I don't want to be around here. I don't want to be around you. don't want to be around my brother. I just want my money. I want to get out of here. This would have been so dishonorable and shameful in the ancient Near East that the proper response from the father should have been to slap his son across the face Take him into the town square, rip his clothes to show extreme anguish, and publicly declare that my son is dead to me. He's dead to me. He's no longer my son. And if the son came to his senses, got on his knees, and begged forgiveness, There may have been forgiveness, but it would have taken time. And he would have had to earn that forgiveness back. And in some way show the public that the father had maintained his honor by standing firm in the face of this impetuous son. Instead, the father decides to liquidate his assets at least a third of it, and give it to the younger son. It actually says, so he divided his wealth between them. Studying uh, this passage, especially a lot of help from, from John MacArthur, he points out that a man owning land and animals, the only way to, to divide that wealth would be to liquidate those assets, to sell his property. And of course, in a town this size, everyone would know what's going on, and there's no way he's getting the actual value that the land and the animals are worth. So he's selling things off pennies to a dollar. The older brother is, is, is getting furious because he had way more he would have inherited if they had let things proceed in the natural progression of life. Land would be worth more. They'd, they'd have more cattle, more livestock. Now he is 
only on two-thirds of the land, and somebody else owns this other third, and now there's problems with the land butting up against someone else's land, and it's just a huge mess. Financially, it looks utterly foolish. I'm sure everybody was shaking their heads at, at this man. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe it? What a fool! If that was my son, right, I would have da 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 It's the proper way to handle it. At this point, I want to hit pause for a second because anyone who's ever raised children or is raising children, this story could really cut close to home. And it should. It's designed to. These human experiences open up our heart to understand spiritual truth. But you have to be careful with parables that you don't take every little aspect of the parable and make a one-to-one comparison with life. They're not prescriptive. This is not the recipe for what you do with a wayward child at home. Well, I cashed out my 401k because the guy in the prodigal son liquidated his ass. No, people, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not the point of the story to teach us the best way to handle a prodigal. In fact, the story was designed uh, for the father to do something that was unexpected on purpose because he's setting up the Pharisees for the big surprise moment. So they're disgusted with this father. They're disgusted with this younger son, but they're certainly now disgusted with the father. So Jesus now has the Pharisees and scribes disgusted with the shepherd, the woman, and the father, all of whom represent God. So what happens next? We see a a disastrous decision coupled with a, a disastrous consequences. And again, I put disastrous, the second one, in quotes. To, to human eyes, it, what happens to the younger son does look disastrous. But you know what? In God's eyes, it's not disastrous. What would be disastrous is if the younger son went off, spent his fortune on loose living, and nothing bad happened to him. The worst thing that can happen to you when you sin is that you get away with it. My my wife and I say in the parenting class that we often pray, Lord, catch my kids sinning and expose it. Publicly. I don't care if it humiliates us. I'd much rather them get caught and have to deal with it so it's out in the open. So every time you get away with it, it ingrains it into you a little bit more, and it's easier to do it the next time, is it not? And the next time, and the next time. Praise the Lord that He disciplines the ones He loves and allows us to suffer the consequences of our sins temporally so that ultimately we won't have to suffer the consequences of our sins eternally. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering the consequences of my sin on the cross, so I wouldn't have to eternally. But thank you, Lord, that when I sin, life doesn't go well for me. The Proverbs say, the way of the transgressor is hard. Good. Amen.
The transgressor thinks his decisions will lead to an easier life. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. Who would choose something that's hard? They think the sin is the easy road. But the path of least resistance is often the wrong path, is it not? God's ways are higher than our ways. We need His wisdom to to live life. Be careful when a path in your mind seems so obvious and so clear and so, yeah, and everyone else around you is saying, what? What are you doing? What are you thinking? It's a wake-up call. God's put many graces in our life. The Word of God, other believers, Bible studies, our small groups, the Sunday sermon, to help us see clearly when we're blinding ourselves. So the younger son decides, I will go far away, away from prying eyes, away from all the people who would stop me or help me, go somewhere where nobody knows me, as if you can hide from God. And he squandered his estate with loose living. In the King James, the word loose living is, is, is the word prodigal. It's where we get the prodigal son. And now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. Boy, he wasn't planning ahead. And when you're sinning, you're not planning ahead. Right? Your friends are like, so what does this mean for you tomorrow? Tomorrow? Who cares about tomorrow? I'm having fun now. Well, don't you see how this is going to affect other people around? Other people? It's about me. It's about what I want. And oh, famine hits. And he began to be in need. That's an understatement. And he went and attached himself. You've got to understand this language here. Attaching yourself to someone is, is no one would hire you. You have no other means of existence. You just go find someone and, and you almost like literally like staple yourself to them. I ain't going away. I'm just going to squat here on your land until you give me some work or give me some scraps or whatever. And so it, he was sent out into the fields to feed swine. No, no self-respecting Jewish boy should be anywhere near swine. They're the most unclean of all animals, right? And he was starving and was longing to fill his stomach with the, with the pods that the swine were eating. And if you know anything about these carob pods, they're almost humanly indigestible. That's, that's how desperate he is. And this is the picture of the sinner. Whether you know it or not as a sinner, this is us. This is how desperate we are in a salvific sense. Oh, sure, you may be doing well and your 401k may be... Uh, you know, overflowing right now with the stock market up and everything seems good, but if you don't know God through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, this is you. This is you. This man has truly hit rock bottom and that may be the best place any of us can be because that's when the miracle happens. 
That's when the heart softens, hopefully. And if you actually look at the structure of this story, it's in a structure that we call a chiasm, which means like an X. And so the story progresses. A happens, and then B happens, and then C happens, and then D happens. And then there's a high point of the story, and then the story goes in reverse. D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. It's like perfectly balanced. Jesus, it's like he's some kind of master storyteller. (laughs) How does he come up with this stuff off the cuff? It's, It's like he's God or something, right? Just the perfect story. And this is the high point, the hinge of the story, the most, the, the, the beautiful point, the point that makes us all get excited. And it says, but when he came to his senses, right? That's, that's a euphemism for repentance. He came to his senses. Repentance in the Greek, metanoeo, literally to change the mind. He changed his mind. He hit his head up against the wall of reality and came to his senses. What am I doing in this pigsty? I have a, a father at home who has resources and I'm his son. Oh, but I really messed things up. Do I dare show my face back home? Okay, I got a plan. <laughs> Because I'm desperate. I will go home. I will confess my sin, which is the proper thing to do. And at this point, we don't even know how authentic his repentance is. And I say to you, you see any measure of repentance from anyone, run with it. Because it's so rare. Run with it. Again, it's not prescriptive here. You know, if, you're, if you liquidated your assets and your son spent it all and then came home, I probably wouldn't give him the keys to the car, the keys to the house, and your PIN number. It's not prescriptive here. You know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me, or shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, that kind of thing. Uh, Reagan would say, trust, but verify. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have some... Uh, some parameters here. Um, we're going to let the rope back out a little bit at a time kind of thing. That's not what the story's aiming at here. What we want to see in the salvific sense is here is the sinner coming up with a plan in his heart to reconcile himself to God. Somehow i got to pay my father back. But how do you pay someone back when you squandered his life savings? You can't. And that is a picture of the sinner. We owe so much to God, we could never pay him back. But he's going to try. I'm going to go to him, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. Good. That is the right place to start. First and foremost, all sin is against God. What did David say when he repented and wrote the psalm? Of repentance. Against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. Well, wait a minute. You sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the whole nation of Israel. Yes, but first and foremost, all sin is against a holy God. And I've sinned against you, Father, and in your sight. 
and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That is a posture of humility and repentance. So make me as one of your hired men. That's his, that's his plan of restitution. I'll, I'll try to earn back whatever I can. It would be presumptuous to come back and say, hey, I ask forgiveness. Your job's to forgive me. And then that's it, right? Because I heard somewhere in my class on forgiveness that when you forgive someone, you promise never to bring it up again, never to hold it against them, and never to tell anyone else about it, which is true. Those are, those are good things about transactional forgiveness. But if you're seeking the forgiveness, you don't get to set the terms of the negotiation. Mom, Dad, I'm back. I know I blew your life savings, but the Bible says you must forgive me. Can I borrow the car tonight? And I could use a hundred bucks. We're going to the movies, you know how expensive that could be. No, he says, I, I don't deserve to be your son. I don't deserve anything. I'd be happy just to be one of your hired men. All right. So what do you think the Pharisees and scribes are thinking at this point? It's about time this kid started acting like a man and showing some honor. And they're waiting to hear what happens when he gets home. What's what's the father going to say? Maybe it's now the father can redeem himself and man up, smack this boy around a little, publicly humiliate him. Because in their minds, that's what would bring honor to the Father. Instead, here's what they get. A dishonorable display and a disgusting demonstration. And both of those are in the scare quotes because it's dishonorable and disgusting to them. But to you and me, we're, we're jumping up and down. We're like, wow, how could this be? That is, that is so beautiful. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that mean? That the father's been perched out on the outskirts waiting for his son. Every day. You know, I could, I, I could really care less about my land and my cattle and my possessions. In fact, I would cash it all in tomorrow to have my son back. That's God's heart for the lost sinner. Is that him? Is that him? Right? The, uh, the quote-unquote honorable man would say, he's got to come all the way in here, and he better crawl the last hundred yards and kiss my feet. And he better go around to everybody in the village and apologize. But no, the, the father sees him from a long way off. And felt compassion for him. That may be the most shocking word in the entire parable. God has compassion. Do you know what compassion means? The word compassion? Compassion, that, that C-O-M prefix, means to, to, to put next to. God putting his passions, his feelings, his emotions with ours. Walking a mile in our shoes. Stooping, condescending down to our predicament. Compassion on his son. He, he, he knows his son's a, in a big mess in a big way. And he has compassion on him. 
You know, when, when, you, when you see somebody in sin, yeah, at first you go, ooh, that's ugly. But doesn't your heart, like, like transition eventually to pity? Oh, honey. You know, oh, you're going to go and do what and squander what with the prostitutes? and the, Oh, oh. Sometimes we'll have people come to the church wanting money and then you find out what they spent it on people out in the community. They lied to the deacons and came up with this sob story and, you know. And you get mad and then you go, well, hey, I'll let God be angry if God wants to be angry. They have to stand before a holy God and explain why they stole from his church. You know, and, and your heart moves from anger and disgust to oh. What is going on in that life and in that heart that you would come and make up a story? You know, oh, I'm pregnant. I don't have any money for the baby. You know, you find out they weren't pregnant. and uh, The anger of man does, what, does not accomplish the righteous purposes of God. And so the, the, the father does something uh, in the ancient Near East that would be extremely dishonorable. He ran. Older men don't run in the ancient Near East. Because when I run, that, that says your time is more important than mine. But if I'm an important person, you'll wait for me. And in fact, the more important you are, the, the more slowly you walk. I'll get there when I get there. And in order to run, you know, they're not wearing slacks and running shorts like we have. They're wearing a, a tunic down to the ankles, and they're not supposed to expose their ankles. They've, they've got to gird up their loins, as the Scriptures say. And running through town, an old man running through town with his legs bare, incredibly shameful behavior. Now the Pharisees are back to, ugh. Ah, ah! I can't stand this guy. In this story, I can't take it anymore. In fact, they probably couldn't stand the father more than the younger son. At least he repented. And he embraced him and kissed him, all covered in swine and filth and manure. He just reeked. And picture of God not waiting for the prodigal to clean up his act. God embraces lost sinners who return home. remember one person asking me, okay, well, technically the son came home first and then the father chased him and he wanted to get into like a whole like election debate. I'm like, this passage has nothing to do with that. Don't do that to parables. It's not a parable designed to teach you anything about the order of salvation. It's a parable that's designed to show that God is compassionate towards sinners. Don't try to draw all of your theology out of a parable. Otherwise, you're going to miss the main point. 
He, he runs, embraces his son, and remember the son has this plan, so he, he, he starts into his rehearsed speech. And you know he's been rehearsing this thing all the way from the pigsty to home. Okay, so I'm going to see my dad. And Have you done this before? Of course you have. When you're going to have like a hard conversation with someone, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say this, and then I'll say this, and then does the conversation ever go the way you thought it would? No. And we just work ourselves up into a big, anxious, hot mess instead of just going to someone humbly and saying, can we talk? So the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he was about ready to get into the place where I'm going to be your slave and I'm going to work everything back and the father's having none of it. And he calls to the servants, Hey, my son's home. Go get the ring. Go get some sandals and go get the really nice coat. The robe. Put it on him. And and go kill the fattened calf that we've been saving for that special occasion. We're going to celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was dead. Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And Christ has made you alive by faith. This, This boy had faith. Enough faith in his father. Enough faith in his father to say, I'll give it a try. And boy, was he getting way more than he expected. And they all began to celebrate. At this point, the Pharisees and scribe would have been so disgusted and so like, this would never happen. This is the stupidest story we've ever heard. It's not fair. See, they have no category for grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is not fair. It's not fair. Grace is not fair. Life is not fair. Amen. Praise the Lord that life is not fair because we'd all be in hell if life was fair. It's not fair that Jesus should take our punishment on the cross, but he did to satisfy the justice of God because God is fair and he's just. He's, he's merciful and he's just. The, 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 the sin is going to get punished one way or the other. Either you take the punishment for all eternity or you humble yourself and give it to Christ and he'll take it on himself on the cross. Well, that's not fair. You're right, it's not, but it's the only way. It's the only way. You can't work it off. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself, so that no one will boast like these Pharisees and scribes. They want fair. See, we all want fair when it benefits us, and then we want, uh, when it benefits us, when, when, when we've wronged, we want mercy. But these folks didn't think they needed any mercy, so they were like, everything should just be fair. Well, don't you need mercy? No. So if I don't think I need mercy, then I can't extend mercy to others. But if I know I have been given infinite mercy from God, I will become a very merciful, compassionate person to others. And I will celebrate when lost sheep come home. Even if it's a great cost. 
And, and, and there's, 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 no, um, there's no guarantee that this younger son doesn't do it again. Grace is expensive. It, it's costly. That's the kind of God we celebrate and worship. Aren't you glad that's God? You know, if you're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> this sermon's for you this morning. You need to know this is the kind of God we have and the kind of God that needs to be worshipped and praised. Magnify his name. He is merciful. In fact, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Father wanted to have mercy on his younger son because he loved him. Well, what happens with the, with the older son? So they're set up now. He's got them right where he wants them. They would have judged the father in the story as dishonorable for allowing himself to be publicly humiliated by the younger son. They would naturally identify with the older son just as Jesus had planned. Self-righteous legalists have no category for grace because they believe they have earned God's favor and deserve a reward. The older son may have stayed home, but his heart was always far from the father. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He didn't know what's going on. Isn't that typical? See how far his heart is from the father? The thing that's most important to the father right now, the older son has no idea what's going on. He's the last to know in the whole household. Even the servants are partying right now. He hasn't figured out he's alone in the field. Where'd everybody go? And he summoned one of the servants, began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Wow, this is really going to anger this older brother. Now, keep in mind, he still has two-thirds of the inheritance. But um, you've you got to understand that this special robe that was put on his brother was intended for when the oldest son got married to wear in his wedding day. Oh, this is bad. And the sandals on the feet, only, only the sons would get to wear sandals. It's what separated them out in the fields from the hired help. And then this ring, the signet ring, they'd stamp it in wax to authorize transactions. The father was giving the younger son authorization to make decisions for the family. This is the kind of inheritance waiting for us in the heavenly places, that we are co-heirs with Christ. The Bible even says we'll judge angels together. Whoa. Co-heirs with Christ. He's big brother. He's our big brother. Don't squander away that kind of inheritance on things that don't satisfy here in this world. So the older son went in and partied, right? No. We find out he was obeying the father not out of love, but, but so he could get his inheritance. He didn't love the father. He only was listening to his father for what he, it, he, it could get for him. Like, do you love God? Do you love the father? Do you, do you love Jesus? Only... To get into heaven? 
you'll have no joy in your Christian walk now if that's the case. Whatever you have to give up now is nothing compared to the riches waiting for us, being in the presence of God forever, having relationship with them forever. That is the benefit. The father got it. He just wanted to be with his son. It wasn't like he was like, oh good, my other son's home, now we can get twice the work done. It had nothing to do with, with that. He just loved his son, was happy he was home. We'll deal with the details later. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. I guess the Pharisees and scribes would be, well, it's about time somebody act honorably. See, now they're really identifying with the older son. This is a guy we can respect. Really, you're going to respect a boy pouting out in the field? I'm not going to come in and party. I don't want to party. And his father came out and began pleading with them. Okay, as much as they don't like the father, they still have respect for the father figure in the story. Story and this also would have angered them. Okay, you don't go out and plead with your kids. Who is this schmuck? I think that's like a, a technical Jewish term. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes uh oh yeah word got back word got back sin never really happens in private it 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 gets back you killed the fattened calf for him and the father said to him how dare you question my judgment? No, it's not what the father said, right? Because the Pharisees and scribes are like any self-respecting father would have responded with a rebuke. But instead he says to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Notice he says has begun to live. Yeah, I know he's not where we want him to be completely, but the important thing is he's back and he was dead and he's begun to live. We're turning over a new leaf. We're starting a new chapter. Let's write a new story together as a family. He was, he was lost and now he's been found. Certainly the younger son's prodigal living was ugly. It's just pure hedonism. He didn't love his father either. He, he just wanted... His money. But at least he wasn't sitting in judgment over his father like the older son. Who was really lost? At least the younger son knew he was lost. The problem with the older son is he doesn't think he's lost. And so he has no category for compassion and mercy. And in fact, he's sitting in judgment over his father. Oh, how could you? This is so Weak and stupid and ugly and foolish. This kind of amazing grace we sang about this morning. 
The older son was also lost, uh, but he didn't know it. And will he be found? You know, uh, I, I mentioned the, the beautiful symmetry of the story. It's actually, um, the second half of the story is asymmetrical. It goes A, B, C, D, D prime, C prime, B prime, and there's no A. It's missing a verse. The final verse should say, and then the older son came to his senses. What was I thinking? My brother's home. Let's go celebrate. But Jesus purposely leaves the end of the story empty because he's put the ball in their court. You've got to finish the story. This story is about you. And it's not finished yet. And you have the opportunity to finish the story the right way. Come to your senses. Come in and celebrate what the Father celebrates. Sadly, we know how they finish the story. So disgusted with this weakness of this Father, this kind of God, they couldn't stand to be around this kind of God. And they killed him. Really, the story ends this way. The older brother walked into the house, picked up a piece of wood, and bludgeoned the father to death and took his place as lead. The Pharisees and scribes would plot to kill Jesus. They they, they couldn't stand that kind of God. They had to get rid of him, and they did. This is the ugliness of the human heart that is self-righteous and doesn't think it needs mercy. Lots of applications here, but the one that I really wanted to focus on this morning then is if this is going to be a church that's all about discipleship and making people into the image of Christ and us being conformed into the image of Christ day by day, how can we be conformed to the image of Christ if we don't have the right image of Christ? And the story shows us that it is, it is, it is a part of human nature to think we know what God is like. And we need to be careful. We need to be grieved by the things that grieve God and we need to celebrate the things God celebrates. So which character are you this morning? Are you the, the prodigal that left home and you need to come home? Or are you the prodigal that stayed home who thinks they're not lost? Because that, that, that's the prodigal that's Worse in God's eyes, because he doesn't know he's lost. Were you here last week during baptisms? If you didn't shed a tear or at least get choked up, something's wrong. That was one of the most beautiful things I've, I, I've ever seen. And to see Will shed a tear as he's baptizing his own daughter. I mean, that, that's, that's what it's all about. It's why we're here. It's what we're doing. Or perhaps you identified with the Father and you say, you know what? I need to start loving the way that Father loves. That's the way I need to love other people. Expensive, extravagant grace and mercy and love. Father, thank you for loving us in this way. We give you all the grace All the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.